Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bible Study Podcast. We're back in our series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It's a series that we're calling Good News for Busy People. I'm sure it wouldn't surprise you if I said that many of my family members and friends were surprised, that's putting it mildly, let's say shocked, when I became a Christian. Many of you probably had a similar experience, and as Peter wrote in his first epistle, our former friends think it's strange that we no longer follow after our previous sinful lifestyle. One of my coworkers at the time when I got saved, he was a believer, and he had patiently shared with me So when I made the decision to trust Christ, he was one of the first people that I wanted to go and tell. So on the morning when I found him, I told him, and his response was, cut it out, Jeff, you shouldn't joke like that. I had been such a mocker that he simply didn't believe me when I told him. I actually had to tell him like a couple of times and convince him that I was serious. And then finally, he realized that I was. And you know what? I can't blame him. I'm not sure I would have believed me either. And then the surprise happened again about nine years later when I became a pastor. Maybe not to the same extent, but even so, some family and friends were surprised. When I told my parents that I was going into full-time ministry, I would have gotten a better reaction if I had told them I was going to go climb the mountains of Tibet to search for the meaning of life. In the years following my conversion and then my eventual calling into ministry, I would run into old friends who were unsaved And it was not unusual for some of them to say something along the lines of, hey, Jeff, I remember the time when you did this or you said that. And with a big smile on their face, they would remind me of something that, well, that I wanted to forget. But on the bright side, it also gave me the opportunity to share with them how God can forgive our sins and change our lives. Then one day as I was working in my office at church, I got a call from the receptionist downstairs that someone had come in asking to see me. When I arrived over in the reception area, there was my high school Spanish teacher standing there with a big smile on her face. At that point, my mind instantly went back 20 years at that point to my high school days when I was a class clown and lived for the opportunity to cut up and get all the other students to laugh. And of all of the classes that I had, I was never more disruptive than I had been in Mrs. Valdez's Spanish class. Not disrespectful, but definitely disruptive. Then Mrs. Valdez said to me, never in all my years of teaching high school did I ever imagine you would become a Christian, let alone a pastor. Well, right about then, my mind was thinking, you need to ask this poor dear lady for her forgiveness for all the times you disrupted her class. But then she said, I just wanted you to know that I'm proud of you and I'm happy for you. Her kind words really caught me off guard, and we proceeded to have a brief but a very sweet conversation there in the reception area, and then she had to go, and I never saw her again. But I do hope to see her again in heaven. 
Remarkably, when Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth on a couple of occasions during his ministry, he was met with skepticism, criticism, opposition, rejection, and unbelief. And what makes that so remarkable is that Jesus had lived a perfect, quiet life there for nearly 30 years with those same people. He had never lied, cheated, gossiped, lost his temper, or caused any trouble. And the current reports about Jesus is that he was healing people of their diseases, casting out demons, and preaching about the kingdom of God. Back in the first year of his ministry, Jesus had returned to his hometown of Nazareth. That's recorded in Luke 4. He attended the local synagogue and read from a scroll of Isaiah, what we would call Isaiah chapter 61 today. And Jesus made the announcement that those scriptures were being fulfilled at that moment in the hearing of those people. The angry response was to usher Jesus to the edge of the local cliff with the intent to push him over, but he passed through their midst. Then during his ministry in Capernaum, you might recall from Mark chapter 3 that some of his family went there and tried to take him away because they thought he had lost his mind. Here now in Mark 6, we begin to read of Jesus' final visit to his hometown of Nazareth. And picking up in verse 1, we read that he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now Jesus could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. In our Bible studies, we like to talk about the power of faith and believing. In our last podcast message in Mark, when a despondent synagogue ruler named Jairus received word that his 12-year-old daughter had died, Jesus said to him, do not be afraid, only believe. And then Jesus raised her from the dead. The power of belief. But something that isn't talked about as much is the power of unbelief or its consequences. Back in the Garden of Eden, Eve doubted God's word, and then her unbelief caused sin to enter the human race. In the days leading up to the Genesis flood, Noah warned people about God's impending judgment, but only seven of Noah's family members believed. The rest of the world drowned in the judgment waters of unbelief. After God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt, he sent 12 spies into the promised land to scat out the blessings that were waiting for them. But the majority of those spies returned with a negative report of unbelief, and so they sentenced themselves to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Here now in Nazareth, Jesus only did a little bit of ministry because of widespread unbelief. You know, Spurgeon was right when he said, unbelief will destroy the best of us, faith will save the worst of us. And so just as there is power in faith, unbelief is also a powerful force. It brought a curse upon the whole of humanity. It drowned the world population in a flood. It activates God's judgment. 
and it keeps people from eternal life in heaven. And so the title of this message is The Power of Unbelief. As chapter 6 opens up, we find Jesus returning again to his hometown of Nazareth. His disciples are with him. Now, Nazareth wasn't a big village, and it was definitely off the beaten path. Scholars estimate that the entire town or village sat on about 60 acres, and the population in Jesus' day was probably right around 500 people. It was so obscure that it's not previously mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, we remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then he escaped with his parents as a baby to Egypt. But after that, he spent the better part of his first 30 years living there in Nazareth with his family. He knew the people of Nazareth very well, and they thought they knew him very well. Nazareth also had a lowly reputation, like many cities and towns do today. I won't mention any towns by name because some of you may live in them and and then you'd get offended, but you know who you are, right? (laughs) You'll remember when Nathaniel was first told about Jesus and his friends described him as the one whom Moses and the prophets had spoken of, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's famous reply was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Simply put, Nazareth was lowly regarded. Nathaniel himself was from Cana, which was less than five miles from Nazareth, so even the surrounding locals had a negative opinion of Nazareth. Today, Nazareth is crowded. I've been there a few times. It's a crowded, tightly spaced city of about 80,000 people. About two-thirds of those are Muslim and one-third are Christian. When you visit Nazareth today, you get no sense of the first century village. However, a few years ago, a replica Nazareth village was constructed near the area of Old Nazareth. And most Christian tour groups today, when they go to Israel, they go up to Nazareth and they visit that Nazareth village. And I think it's very well done. It gives you really a great sense of what it would have been like in the days of Jesus. Now, as he had done on his first visit, Jesus entered the local synagogue on the Sabbath, as we read here in verse 2. Perhaps because his family had reported that Jesus was mentally unstable. Back from chapter 3, the townspeople here did not attempt to throw him off the cliff this time, and instead they wrote him off along with his teachings. Back in Capernaum, tens of thousands of people were dogging his every step, but here in Nazareth, it seems like no one paid much attention to him or his disciples. But when the people in the synagogue heard Jesus speak, they asked, where did this man get these things? The people weren't denying the wisdom of what Jesus was saying, but they were asking where that wisdom came from. They knew that he had no formal religious training or schooling to be a rabbi. Because of his biblical wisdom and miraculous works, the people should have been drawn to Jesus and who he was. But because of their unbelief, they were offended. Not a lot has changed some 2,000 years later, and for many people, if you bring up the name of Jesus, the response you'll get is that they're angry and offended. Then in verse 3, to bolster their sense of resentment, they said to him with contempt, or about him with contempt, is this not the carpenter? Modern translation, how can a local handyman be the Messiah? In Matthew's parallel account, they refer to Jesus as the carpenter's son. That is to say, Jesus made tables and chairs just like his old man did. Then the locals continued to belittle Jesus, calling him the son of Mary. 
Now, we want to understand this was a derogatory term because Jewish sons were always identified by their father's name. We see this even amongst his disciples. You have Simon, the son of Jonah, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, um, James, the son of Alphaeus, and so forth. So they should have called Jesus the son of Joseph. Going back to John 1 and those friends who told Nathaniel about the Messiah, remember they described him as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and that was the proper way to describe him, but they didn't do that here. Now, scholars believe that Joseph, his foster father, had been deceased for some years before Jesus began his ministry, and and all evidence suggests that to be true. But even if his father had passed away, it didn't matter. Jewish sons were still referred to by their father's name, not by their mother. So those local Nazarenes who knew the circumstances of Mary getting pregnant and giving birth out of wedlock were taking shots at Jesus by identifying him as the son of Mary. They were insulting him by essentially saying that no one knew who his real father was. And then by calling him illegitimate, they were dismissing him as being the Messiah. The same type of belittling would continue on in the ministry of Jesus. You might recall that when Jesus was accusing the unsaved religious leaders of doing the works of their father, the devil, they responded by saying, well, we weren't born of fornication. Once again, saying, we're not illegitimate like you. As the locals here continued trying to whittle Jesus down, they pointed out that he was simply the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, along with their sisters. In other words, he's just part of a local family. Jesus had four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. After Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit and had given birth, she and Joseph went on to have at least six children together. It just says sisters, plural, so we know it's at least two, but it could have been more. Uh, We are not given the names of the sisters, by the way, but we have the names of the four brothers. And of those four, James and Jude would write New Testament epistles that bear their name. They were saved after Jesus rose from the dead. But when we put this all together, the response of the Nazareth locals was to say that Jesus was nothing special, just an illegitimate, uneducated handyman, and they were saying, we grew up with his brothers and sisters. Therefore, they were offended at him, as the end of verse 3 states. There's a story that goes about a tourist who's walking around the National Gallery Art Museum in London, looking at some of the paintings by Monet. He wasn't impressed, and so the tourist said to a guard standing close by, I don't see anything special in these particular paintings. Sir, the guard replied, these paintings are not on trial here, the visitors are. The people living in Nazareth thought they were judging Jesus, describing him as nothing special, but Jesus was judging them. He would never return to Nazareth again. Our first of three points then, under the title of the power of unbelief, is that unbelief hardens the heart. Unbelief has the power to harden the heart. Instead of appreciating Jesus, the Nazareth locals were offended by him. From the Greek verb for offended comes the English term scandalize. In their hearts, someone as ordinary and common as Jesus claiming to be the Messiah was scandalous. Pastor Eugene Peterson summed it up correctly, and I quote, Because people thought they knew who Jesus was, they ended up asking scornfully, Who does he think he is? 
Jesus rightly said that a prophet receives honor elsewhere, but not in his own country or his own home or among his own family. It reminds us of a very old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And you know, that phrase actually dates back to before the days of Jesus. The classic example of unbelief hardening the heart is the story of Pharaoh in the Old Testament book of Exodus. The more that uh, Pharaoh saw evidence for God's existence and his power and authority, the more his heart was hardened by unbelief. Like many unsaved people today, Pharaoh's defiance of God did not come from ignorance, it came from pride, and he was actually proud of his unbelief. That's how a lot of unsaved people are today. They're proud of their unbelief. As a point of personal application for you and I as believers, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we must guard our hearts against familiarity affecting us. We study many of the same Bible passages over the years, and we see people making commitments and coming to Christ, and we return to church and to the communion table. And if we're not careful, it can all become a bit familiar causing us to have a casual and perhaps even a callous attitude spiritually. We need to regularly remind ourselves that we were doomed, hopeless sinners saved by God's amazing grace. Otherwise, we'll become like the children of Israel, going from celebrating the miracle of the Red Sea to despising the manna in the wilderness. Going back to Jesus being called the carpenter, it's one of the titles we know him by in Scripture. It was uh, the Greek philosopher Socrates who said that when planning a perfect community, it would require three things, weavers to make clothes, farmers to grow food, and carpenters to build homes and furniture. In the community of Nazareth, Jesus had been a carpenter. The Greek word for carpenter is tekton, and it refers to a craftsman who works with wood, metal, or stone. From tekton comes the word architect. In the mid-2nd century, the early church stated that Jesus and his father Joseph made wooden plows and yokes for farmers. Sometimes unsaved people who think they know the Bible will say, well, Jesus was a shepherd. <laughs> well, he is the good shepherd, but by occupation, Jesus was a carpenter. So why was Jesus a carpenter? Does that fact have any significance? Let me give you four observations about Jesus being a carpenter, if you want to make note of them. Number one, Jesus was born in a carpenter's home. Once again, we refer to Matthew's parallel account and the people of Nazareth when they said, is this not the carpenter's son? So we learn that both Jesus and Joseph were carpenters by trade. In that culture, every Jewish father taught his son a trade. And in fact, the rabbis would say, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. When I was growing up, not only were both of my parents very hard workers, they also made sure that my brother and I learned how to work hard. We both had so many chores assigned to us, and we were expected to do them properly. And if the work was unsatisfactory, they would make us do it over again. At that time while growing up, as you can imagine, I definitely didn't appreciate what my parents were doing with us. But as I got older and put that hard work ethic into practice, it actually served me well, and I came to appreciate it. So I will say publicly right now, and I've said it before, I do appreciate both my parents teaching me how to work hard. Here in our passage, the Jews were not expecting their Messiah to come as a humble carpenter. They were looking for a conquering king who would free them from the tyranny of Rome and bring them into their own kingdom. 
but Jesus did not meet Jewish expectations. He was born in a cave that was used as a shelter and feeding stall for animals. He was born in the tiny village of Bethlehem. His first visitors were smelly shepherds. When his family eventually settled, it was in a town with a bad reputation. He grew up in a simple carpenter's home, and then he himself became a carpenter. The very God of heaven truly humbled himself in coming to the earth. The second thing about Jesus being a carpenter is that he came to do a carpenter's work. When you stop and think about it, what else would Jesus be here on earth but a carpenter and a builder? In Genesis 1, he created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in the universe. In Colossians 1, Paul wrote of Jesus that by him were all things created that are in heaven and are on earth, and in him all things consist or are held together. Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And in John 14 in the upper room, Jesus told his downhearted disciples, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. So from the very beginning, Jesus had been a builder. Thirdly, Jesus had a carpenter's vision. People who build and make things like woodworkers and sculptors, they often have the ability to see the finished product in the raw material. You know, a woodworker looks at a tree stump and sees a table, or a sculptor looks at a block of marble and sees a statue. I admire that, and that's definitely not a gift or an ability that I have. The closest I ever came was back in second grade when I turned a lump of clay into an ashtray for my parents. Between the two of them, they were smoking four packs of cigarettes a day, so that seemed like the right thing to do to make an ashtray for them. Oh my, how times have changed. In the same way, though, spiritually, Jesus had that vision. Um, take, for example, the 12 disciples that he chose and called. The men Jesus selected would not have been selected by others looking to build a winning team or a profitable company. But in that impulsive fisherman, Simon, Jesus saw a spiritual rock called Peter. In the tax-collecting trader named Levi, Jesus saw a gospel writer named Matthew. In the political zealot dedicated to overthrowing Rome, Jesus saw Simon, who had become zealous for God's kingdom. In the Pharisee called Saul, God saw the great apostle Paul. And you know what? Jesus looks at us and he sees the potential as well. And so we read in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, fourthly, Jesus died a carpenter's death. Have you ever thought about that? The Roman soldiers took hammers and spikes and they nailed Jesus to a wooden cross. But through his death on the cross, Jesus built a bridge for us to heaven. When carpenters in Greece finished their projects, they would stand back and declare, Tetelestai, it is finished. And as you would recognize, those were the final words of Jesus, the carpenter from the cross. It is finished. And what was finished was the work of our salvation. This leads us to our second point, which is that unbelief blinds the mind. It hardens the heart and it blinds the mind. The Nazareth locals thought they knew Jesus, but their minds were actually blinded by their unbelief. In verse 5, we read that Jesus could do no mighty work there except to heal a few people. Now, there's two sides to this statement that Jesus could do no mighty work there. On the one hand, it's not that 
anything or anyone could prevent or diminish the divine power of Jesus. We don't want to misunderstand that. But on the other hand, Jesus refused to help or to heal those who rejected him and who refused to believe. Jesus had healed many with weak faith, little faith, and even no faith, but this was blatant unbelief. In Matthew's parallel account, he writes that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Back to the story of Pharaoh, who had rejected all of the miracles that clearly demonstrated God's power and divine authority. Eventually, he and the Egyptians were judged by God when the Lord sent an angel of death to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son. In utter despair and despondency, Pharaoh pleaded with Moses to take the Hebrew slaves and leave immediately. But soon afterwards, because his mind was blinded by unbelief, Pharaoh and his armies went chasing after the Hebrews in an attempt to bring them back into slavery once again. But as you know, God intervened and Pharaoh's entire army drowned in the Red Sea. Now, some people see doubt and unbelief as virtually the same thing, but we need to understand that there's a big difference. In fact, I came across a sermon recently from a pastor talking about this, and I would like to read you a little excerpt of what he wrote, because I think it's very helpful. He said this, To help us understand unbelief, we need to understand doubt. Doubt is not the absence of faith. Doubt is the questioning of faith. Listen carefully, he writes, you can only doubt what you already believe. Let me repeat that. You can only doubt what you already believe. Then he says, let me give you an example. When a Christian doubts the existence of God, he fears that God may not exist. He is doubting what he believes. When an atheist doubts, he fears that God may actually exist. By definition, you have to believe something before you can doubt that something. Christians have doubts all the time. They have unanswered questions about what God is doing and why he does or does not do what he is doing. That's normal. This brings us to unbelief. Unbelief is the determined refusal to believe. Doubt is a struggle faced by the believer. Unbelief is a condition of the unbeliever. Unbelief is an act of the will. It's a choice. Unbelief says, I hear what you're saying and I choose not to believe it. I reject what you're saying altogether. Again, I think that's a very helpful explanation. Notice here in verse 6 how Jesus marveled at the people's unbelief. We see the power of unbelief that in the face of a sinless life, teachings filled with truth and wisdom and the wonder of his miracles, they still refuse to believe. Jesus didn't just marvel at their unbelief, he marveled at their unbelief in the face of so much evidence. If anyone should have believed in Jesus, it should have been his family and neighbors in Nazareth. As one scholar said of this passage, they could not explain him, so they rejected him. It's worth noting that only twice in the Gospels do we ever read that Jesus marveled at something. Jesus marveled at the faith of a Gentile Roman centurion in Matthew 8. And then here in Mark 6, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of these Jewish people and his family. Our third point then is that unbelief condemns the soul. It hardens the heart, it blinds the mind, and ultimately it condemns the soul. Nothing much, again, has changed over the past 2,000 years, and those who claim to supposedly know about Jesus dismiss him, belittle him, mock him, and reject him. 
Unsaved people with preconceived ideas like to lecture genuine believers about Jesus even as they reject him in unbelief. As one commentator wrote of this passage, once it became clear that Nazareth had rejected Jesus, he rejected them. Ichabod was written over Nazareth. The glory has departed. Well, in closing and with Christmas on the way, I'd like to share these thoughts from Pastor Dustin Benj, who writes, Born not to a king, but to a carpenter. Born not in robes, but in rags. Born not in gold, but in hay. Born not in renown, but in obscurity. Born not in splendor, but in a trough. Born not to live, but to die. Oh, come let us adore him. Pastor Benj goes on to write, The manger is empty, the cross is empty, the tomb is empty, but the throne is occupied for eternity. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you in Jesus' name.